Would you turn, please, to the third chapter of the book of Philippians? Philippians chapter 3. Vance Packard wrote a a book a number of years ago entitled The Hidden Persuaders. Some of you, I'm sure, uh, read the book. And he made the observation in the book that uh, the advertising industry is not selling goods. He, He was thinking particularly of television. On television, he said the ad industry, Madison Avenue, is not selling goods. They're marketing solutions to human needs. And I've never forgotten that. I, it, it caused me to look at uh, advertisements on television and magazines in a, in a new way. He's right. He's absolutely right. You can buy a soap that will enable you to see your face in your old second china. And your neighbors will come over and say, wow, what a woman. What they're, what they're marketing is worth and, uh, and value. Uh, some of the slogans uh, indicate the same sort of thing. You're the one. It's attributing worth and value and significance to you. You never looked so good. Uh, you deserve a break today. Uh, you're worth it. You're valuable. Uh, the one I like is have it your way. The whole world's out of control. You, know, you, you can't control anything, but at least you can have a hamburger that's uh, cooked the way you want it, has all the goodies on it that, that you want, gives you back your decision-making power. Uh, what people really are looking for, is, as, we, as we've seen in, in this book, is significance and security. They want to be worthwhile, they want to have value, and they want to know that Not only are they okay, but everything else is okay. And what they want as an end product or a byproduct is joy, real joy. That's what people are looking for. You know, it strikes me as very significant that there's a truck ad in which, uh, actually it's just a vehicle ad in which the person leaps into the air in obvious joy. I found it. Whatever it is I'm looking for. There's even a perfume, very expensive perfume with with that name, joy, because that... Basically, it's what people are looking for. But, but joy, is, as we all know, is a will-o'-the-wisp. Uh, it's a byproduct. If you pursue it directly, you, ne- you, you never achieve it. It's always a byproduct of, of achieving something else. There, there are, as C.S. Lewis points out, uh, moments of joy, serendipities, he calls them, when we're surprised by joy, uh, birth of a child or a wedding or a time when someone... Uh, uh, treats us especially well, or we're accorded some honor, we, we sense joy. It wells up in us, but then it vanishes, and we have only the memory. That's what drives us on. Well, what, what we're really looking for is what Paul calls in this book joy. And as I've said uh, a number of times for myself, I don't think that the theme of this book is joy in and of itself. The theme is rejoice in the Lord, we'll only find that, that joy that we're looking for in Christ. We won't find it any other place. Everything else is a dead, dead-end street. But the problem is we're always being lied to. We're always being deceived. And we are suckers. I'm a sucker for it. We're told that something will produce the joy that we're looking for, and we believe it. That's why we need the word. Uh, Carolyn and I had an interesting experience yesterday. We have a little dog. Those of you who have been in our house seen that little little pooch. 
And uh, she, uh, any, anytime anybody comes over to the house, she just goes berserk. She jumps up and down, barks, and runs and hides under the bed. People that come to our house uh, basically are, you know, they're benign. They're not going to hurt her. They, I mean, they like dogs, and they even try to speak to her, and she wouldn't have anything to do with them. She runs away because she's afraid of them. Yesterday, we, were, uh, we decided to take the day off and went up on the Middle Fork just below Atlanta, and uh, we were fishing up there, and uh, all of a sudden I heard Carolyn yell, No! like that. And I turned around, and there was a coyote about that far from the dog, making a run on the dog, and you could just see lunch written on that coyote's <laughs> eyes. And our stupid dog was wagging her tail. <laughs> she thought she'd found a friend. And we're like that. You know, we don't have the sense, really, to know what's dangerous and what, what isn't dangerous. That's why we need the word. That's why Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord. You're only going to find, you're only going to find joy in the Lord. Everything else is a dead-end street. I read last week of uh, the story of Karen Velez, who was the Playmate of the Year in 1986. And uh, in the interview, she was asked to what she attributed her success, and she said, my grandmother, my grandmother suggested that I try out for a centerfold. And I thought, man, what is the world coming to when grandmothers advocate posing for dirty pictures? And I, I thought, if you can't trust your grandmother, who, who can you trust? But, uh, you know, all around us, people are deceiving us, telling us the wrong things. Often their counsel is well meant, but it leads us astray. And sometimes I think Christians are the worst of all. Honest to goodness. I think the church has misled more people in this regard, perhaps, uh, because they, they, people just don't understand what it is that, that gives us joy. And, and that's what Paul is trained to tell us. He says you, you don't find joy, for example, in your ancestry, you know, having been raised in a Christian home and having been taught the truth. That, you're not going to find any joy in that. And you don't find joy in orthodoxy. People know that. I, I, I've talked to to uh, individuals that have gone through catechism classes and they just find the whole thing dead and deadening. There's nothing wrong with learning theology. There's nothing wrong with being catechized, but uh, having your, your theology straight doesn't satisfy you. I was told as a, as a child, the, the thing to do is to know the word. I, if I heard that once, I heard it 100,000 times. Know the word. And there's nothing wrong with knowing the word. I've basically given my a good portion of my life to knowing the word, but, but you'll not find any joy in the word or in mere, mere knowledge, sheer knowledge of the word. It's, it's that attitude that, that caused Jesus so much uh, uh, frustration about the Pharisees. He said to them in John 12, You search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. But they are they which testify to me, and you will not come to me that you might have eternal life. It's a good thing to know the word, but only to the end that it leads us to Christ, who is our joy and our and our satisfaction. And as I said uh, last week, or as Paul tells us, activity won't do it either. I run into all kinds of people. A lot of people in this church are just burned out because they were in churches where they were involved in 
in, in a multitude of activities. They were chairmen of boards, chairwomen of boards. They were involved in a lot of different ministries, and they just finally just gave up because it was so empty and unsatisfying. Activity in and of itself won't, doesn't lead to joy. We need to use our gifts for one another. We need to be involved in, in ministries. But if we're pursuing satisfaction through activity, even Christian activity, it will always leave us empty and disillusioned and satisfied. And God may well take our activity away from us. Set us aside for a while in order to teach us that we have to pursue after God and, and God alone. And as Paul says, even his morality didn't count. He didn't put any, there wasn't any credence in that for him. He didn't, wasn't, didn't have any confidence, didn't satisfy him. You see, because it's not the pursuit of righteousness, it's the pursuit of God. That's what Paul means when he says, I'm pursuing after, uh, not, not my own righteousness, he said, but the righteousness which is mine through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the righteousness that, that our Lord provides as we walk with him, both the state in which we walk and, our, and the change of character that, that he works in our lives as a result of that walk. But the mere pursuit of goodness or morality won't satisfy us. That's why sometimes God will permit our morality to be taken away from us. That puzzled a lot of people last week. I had some questions about that. that you know, how, how could God want us to sin? And it's not that he wants us to sin, but he will permit moral collapse, I'm convinced. Because sometimes it's that that brings us to the end of ourself and we realize that, that we need God and that apart from him we'll never be satisfied. Carolyn reminded me last week that, that that's exactly what happened to Peter. Uh, the Lord said to his disciples, to the apostles, one of you will betray me. Peter said, not I. Everybody else might betray you, but not I. I won't do that to you. And Jesus said, uh, the cock will not crow tonight, three times tonight, until you deny, uh, twice until you deny me, three times. And uh, then he said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Interesting, he does not say, I prayed for you that you won't deny me. He doesn't say, I prayed for you that you won't deny me. He says, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are converted, that is when you repent, come back and strengthen your brothers. God permitted Peter to deny him because that brought him to the end of himself. And he realized he couldn't put any confidence in his morality and his righteousness. It doesn't satisfy. It just leaves us empty, cold. It can even harden our hearts if that's our main pursuit because it tends to make us intolerant of others and their failures. But uh, when we fail, we, uh, we come to see how much we need God. I, you know, I think, for example, that that's why God may permit sin to persist. Uh, as I've said before, what God looks for is the intent of our heart. If, if we want to deal with sin, we want to see it dealt with and put away. That's what God sees. But sometimes he will, pers- he will let a habit, some habitual action or or some addiction, or some sin persist, he'll permit it to persist because he wants to keep us clinging to him. I, the, the, the best analogy I can think of for that idea is the fact that, that uh, the Lord left the Canaanites, some of the Canaanites in the land, in the promised land. They're little enclaves uh, of 
fortified cities in which Canaanites were safe and secure within the promised land. And the Israelites weren't able to eradicate them until well into Solomon's time. And uh, you read through Judges, you see what happened. To the first part of 1 Samuel, the Canaanites would make raids out of their cities on, on the Israelites, and they would suffer disastrous defeats. Why? Well, it, it would keep them walking with God. It took time for these walled cities to be brought down. And I think sometimes uh, God permits food addictions or food disorders to continue, or other habitual actions, things that we can't, uh, we, we, you know, we just, habits that we cannot control. He permits them to go on for a time in order to keep us clinging to him. Uh, he, he cares, and he's powerful enough to do something about it, but he will let them go on because he has some other area he's concerned about, and mainly he wants us to cling to him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to be devoted to him, with him. We're preoccupied with the problem. He wants us to be preoccupied with him. And uh, he may in time eradicate them, or he may wait until we see the Lord Jesus. When we see him, we're going to be like him, John says. And then we won't have these problems with our bodies. But he may, pers- he may let them persist for a while, because it's far more important that we hang on to him and worship him and love him. That we then that we overcome some uh, some habit, because you see that what God wants us to experience is joy, and He knows that we will only find joy in centering on Christ. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. That's the only place you can find joy. Everything else is a cul-de-sac. Everything else is a box uh, canyon. Uh, it doesn't go anywhere. It just pinches out. Uh, in, in this passage later uh, in the section which will will be covered next week. Paul describes those whose end is destruction, uses an interesting word. It's not the word for annihilation, it's a word for loss or waste. Uh, It pinches out. It's the same thing that Psalm 1 is talking about when it says, the Lord knows or is aware of or watches over the way of the righteous, those that walk with him. Not those that have everything right, but those that walk with him. But, and, and, and it's interesting to notice how he puts it, the way of the unrighteous will perish. It pinches out. It's like looking down uh, a railroad track. You know how parallax works. The, the railroad tracks uh, converge to, the, to a vanishing point. And that's what happens to a person who's trying to find their satisfaction in anything other than God. It's like a Salvador... Dolly painting, everything vanishes into the horizon. What happens is all these roads pinch out. The way of the ungodly will perish, Psalm 1 says. And that forces him to, to come back and find God. See? That's why he'll let us run down these, these roads. He'll let us follow these rabbit trails until they pinch out. And then we come back to God and we discover he's the one that we, we've been looking for all along. And we learn, as Paul puts it, to rejoice in the Lord. Now... The question we want to try to answer this morning is how, how we get to know God, how we develop intimacy with him, if that's the, the goal of all of life, to know him and to worship him forever. Uh, the Westminster Catechism has it right. You're a Presbyterian. And you, you've memorized the Catechism. And that's right. Chief end of man is to know God and to worship him forever, to love him forever. And uh, our hearts yearn for that. We need to know how that, that comes about. That's what Paul is concerned with in uh, Philippians three twelve through 14. 
Verse 12, not that I have already arrived. That is, not that I know him. Not that I am as intimate with him as I want to be. Remember he said the consuming uh, urge of his life was that he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That was his preoccupation. He had other occupations, but his preoccupation was to know Christ. And uh, he says in verse 12, Not that I have already arrived. I haven't, uh, haven't obtained it yet. Or have already been made perfect. The word is mature. And he's going to t- uh, comment later on this, uh, this notion of maturity in verse 15. Not that I've already arrived or have already been made perfect, but a press on. Uh, he uses the same word that he uses in verse 6 for persecuting the church. As for zeal, persecuting the church. It's the same word. It's translated differently. It means a dogged pursuit after something. And that's that's what he's saying. I, I am pursuing God with all my heart. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not perfected in it. I don't know Christ the way I want to know him yet, but one thing I do. Paul was a a, a sort of Johnny OneNote. He was a single-minded man. This is the one thing that I do. Whatever else I'm doing, this is the one thing that I do. Forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, the first thing Paul tells us in this passage is that if you want to, if you want intimacy with God, you have to want it very much. That's his point. You have to want it a lot. Uh, I don't have to tell you, men, how to pursue after uh, uh, your vocation. You know, most of you are looking for satisfaction in your jobs, and you. You think about that all the time. You get, that's the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning. It's what you think of when you drive to work. It's what you think of when you're coming home. That's uh, what you think of after supper at night. As soon as the news is over, and you get out your briefcase and you start thinking about work. You're, whatever your occupation is, you're preoccupied with, with making a success of that, of that job. Many of you are. And I, I know what that's like. And many of you women are the same way. Uh, Paul says, no, no. What, what, I, what I'm doing is preoccupying myself with God. I'm making this the main thing. The major pursuit of my life is to know God. He's saying what Moses says in, in Deuteronomy. He says, if you seek God, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. That's it. You've you got to want it very, very badly. You've got to want it with all your heart. So that, that's my question. To, I have to ask that question to me. I have to ask this question of you. What, what do you want? Do you really want to know God? That's where, that's where we have to start. We have to long for it. We have to yearn for it. We have to hunger for it with all of our heart. That's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 42. Will you, uh, will you turn with me to that passage? And let me read just the first couple of verses of it. Psalm 42. Uh, this man was uh, exiled up, up, 
into the north. He was living in the northern part of Palestine, and he was unable to make the pilgrimage down to uh, Jerusalem. And he was longing to go to the temple and meet with God. The conclusion he finally comes to in the psalm, you can read it on your own, is that he doesn't have to go to Jerusalem to meet God. He can meet God where he is. But he's expressing his longing in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. He doesn't think of himself as a camel that's self-sufficient. can make its way across the desert without, uh, without any water. It's like a hounded deer, like a hunted deer, panting for, for water, uh, hungering and thirsting after God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet God? You see, and as you read on through the psalm, you see this is a man with a yearning after God. He wants it more than anything else in the world. So I'd say that's where we have to begin. We have to want it. More than we want success in business or marriage or anything else, we have to want God with all of our heart. Again, as Moses put it, if you seek him, you'll find him if you seek him with all of your heart. But let me tell you, that yearning for God is instinctual. It's not something you have to generate. It's what Paul calls here the heavenward call of, in Christ Jesus. He's God pulling you and yearning to have you as his friend. Uh, if you go up into the Stanley Basin now, you'll, the salmon, the fall spawning run has begun, and you'll see those enormous salmon. You saw one like this going up, making its way up the Salmon River last weekend. The uh, water's only about that deep. And they're thrashing along. You know, their dorsal fins are sticking out, and they're all battered. But they're, you know, they're heading for home. Nothing's going to stop them. they got that single mind. They're going back to their sources, back to their roots, back to their beginnings. And uh, as you know, I think so much of nature is metaphorical. It's designed to teach us something about God and about ourselves. And uh, I, I, God wants us to know that we have the same homing instinct. God's calling us home, back to him. All those yearnings and longings for a mate or for children or for success in business or for wealth or for ease, whatever it might be, pleasure, those are simply yearnings for God. That's all. And he has put those yearnings in our hearts. He's drawing us, alluring us, wooing us, yearning, uh, uh, pulling us back, back to him. Now, th- that's the first thing we need to know is that we have to want it very much. The second thing we need to know is that uh, God wants it. Uh, Paul says, uh, I press onward toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. And then uh, earlier in verse 12, he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If we had read on into Psalm 42, you'd you'd read a verse that says, Deep calls to deep. Well, the psalmist is referring to to God himself, the deep things of God, the heart of God, calling to our depths, calling to our heart, drawing us back to him. God himself uh, wants it. He's longing for us to worship him. He's seeking our worship. He wants you and me more than we want him. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he said to the woman at the well. She said, where, you know, where, where should we worship, here or there? Jesus said, doesn't matter. 
God's just seeking people to worship him. And uh, as an example of God's penchant for seeking us out, Jesus himself sought out this woman. Uh, he said to his disciples, we're going to go north. Let's, you know, I, we have to go through Samaria. Normally Jews went through Perea because they didn't like Samaritans. Jesus went through Samaria because he wasn't a racist. And he met that dear woman who uh, had been through five husbands and who was living with a man who wasn't her husband. She was a romance junkie. She was looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and our Lord saw her heart. And uh, he said to her, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're drinking from the wrong wells. You're looking at the, in the wrong places. I'm the one who's going to satisfy your thirst. Come to me, and you'll find a source of living water, water that will truly satisfy you. Now, the reason he was there sitting on that well talking to that woman is that he was illustrating the fact that God is seeking us. He goes looking for us. I'm convinced that that God has placed in every one of us a desire for intimacy that that is nothing more or less than his call to us. Uh, a couple of months ago, Carolyn and I were in a group. I, I think we were the only Christians in the group. The rest of them were all non-Christians. And there was one man in that group who had just had the... Whenever he would look at you, he just had this haunted look in his eyes. And you could, you, you could sense this man desperately wanted a friend. And whenever the group would break up, he would just... You know, he was right on me or, or, or some other man in the group. He just haunted looking for a friend. And... Uh, uh, finally, after a, a day or so, I, I said to, to him and, and to the group, it was the right occasion, I said, you know, I, I sense that, that, that you, you know, all of us are looking for a friend, and basically that's what, that's what you're looking for. But there isn't a man in this group that can meet, meet your needs. They will always disappoint you. What you're looking for is God. And he, he nodded his head up and down because he too sensed that, and, and you do too, that no friend... You know, be it male or female, is going to satisfy that hunger for intimacy. Only God can. That longing for a friend is is nothing more than God's calling you into a friendship with him. Uh, Some of you may have read uh, Jerry Kramer's latest book, Distant Replay. Uh, In fact, some of you I know know Jerry Kramer. He lives over here in Parma. Uh, he played uh, for the Green Bay Packers in 1967, the year they won the Super Bowl. And he wrote the best-selling sports book ever, uh, Instant Replay, after they won the uh, Super Bowl. And 18 years later, in 1985, they held a reunion, and they gathered all the old Packers. And they were going to meet together and find out what had happened in their lives uh, since then. And almost all of them showed up except Lionel Eldridge. Now, Lionel Eldridge was a defensive end, and... Couldn't find him, so Kramer went looking for him. Finally found him in Milwaukee, living in the YMCA. He'd been an alcoholic, finally woke up one morning in a gutter, and someone had stolen a Super, Super Bowl ring, and, and that's what caused him to come to his senses, and he went through AA and cleaned his life up, and he was living in this, uh, in this YMCA, virtually destitute. Kramer asked him if he needed anything. Aldridge said, and here I'm quoting, I don't need money. I don't need people. I'm just terribly lonely. I need a friend. Will you be my friend? Now, that, that's that hunger. 
that we have for God. And, and as I say, that's nothing more or less than God calling you, saying, come closer, come closer. See? So we have to want it very much, and then we have to understand that God wants it very much. He wants it more than we want it. And all those, uh, those longings, those, our heart crying out for something more than human friendship is, is God's call. Uh, George MacDonald put it like this, Well, you work on indocile hearts by small successes, disappointments small. Think about that. He works through small successes. We, we look for big successes, and they turn out to be small successes, and we're disappointed. Well, that's, that's just God calling us, working on our indocile hearts, our rebellious hearts. By nature, weather, failure, by sore falls, see, again, by failure, moral failure in our life, by shame, anxiety, bitterness, and smarts, the cruel, thoughtless things that people say God permits so that you'll come to see that you're going to find your satisfaction in God. By loneliness, by weary loss of zest, the rags, the husks, the swine, the hunger quest drive home the wanderer to the Father's breast. God permits tragedies, the tragedies of life, to play upon us in order to draw us home to him. So uh, two things Paul wants us to know. We have to want it very much. And we have to know that he wants it very much. The third thing Paul says is that we should never look back. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward toward the goal to win the prize. The satchel uh, page said, never look back, something may be gaining on you. Uh, don't, you know, don't worry about, about the sins of the past. Don't worry about the successes of the past. Don't count on them. Never look back. Forget the past. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The thing you did last night, the thing you did this morning, doesn't matter. It's forgiven. Just repent of it, put it away, and know that that, that you've gained forgiveness through the atonement and, and go on with God. Uh, I've talked to so many people who have had their diet short-circuited because they had some big failure. You know, they ate a huge, huge piece of cake, and uh, they think, uh-oh, I've blown it now. Uh, I'll never recover. But no, you know, the thing to do is, you know, forget forget the the big cake last night. If you're working on a diet, just you know, go on from here. But you know, that that's that's small potatoes. What what God is talking about is sin. What Paul is talking about is sin or the past. Anything in the past. Whatever happened yesterday, doesn't matter. Forget it. Just turn your back on it. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. Confess it. But uh, know that God doesn't see it anymore and just, just keep on going. That's what Paul is saying. So we have to, if we, if we want intimacy with God, we have to want it very much. We have to pursue after God. It, it's going to take some time out of your life. You know, if you're a morning person, get up in the morning and meet with God. Uh, read the Word, but not as a thing in itself, but as a way of, of you know, look through the Word to God. And get to know him and worship him and love him. And spend time in, in, in prayer and worship and devotion. Not just lists, but, but you, know, you realize that he's a living God that you're talking to, fellowshipping with him. And pursue him vigorously. Want it very much. 
And then know that God wants you very much. He's looking for you. I had a man come up after the first service and say to me, I, I, I always thought I found God. He said, what, what actually happened is that God found me. Isn't that true? And I said, yeah, that's right. That's right. He's been looking for you all your life. He's been calling to you. I read a story one time. I don't know if I told this story a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember. I know I intended to, and I think I forgot. But the, the mountain preacher who was being interviewed, did I tell you that story? And uh, they said, how did you, how did you become a, a believer? And he said, well, I, I had done my part, and God done his part. And they thought, ah, I got you now. And they said, what do you mean you've done your part? He said, well, my part was to run away from God, and his part was to run and fetch me. <laughs> and that's what all of us have been doing. It's making tracks, running away from God as fast as we could run. And God's part was to run and fetch us because he wants us, wants us. He loves us. He wants to draw us back to him. So Paul says, don't worry about the past, the failures of the past, the, the things way back that you feel disqualify you, and don't worry about the things that happened today. Don't even worry about things that could happen tomorrow. Just just keep pursuing. you got the principle down. I'm going to know him. Now get the pursuit going, he's saying. Then he gives us a, a wonderful uh, incentive, word of encouragement. Our time's gone, but I just want to read verses 15 and 16. All of us who are mature should, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up. Actually, the word is walk in step. Walk along with him uh, in, the, in the measure that we've already, uh, already attained. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that maturity is, a, is both a relative and an absolute thing. And we use, we use the term that way when we talk about, uh, about human beings. Uh, if a young man is 18 to 21, we say he's mature. But you know, there are other, other elements of maturation that have to take place. Uh, he, we wouldn't say he is perfectly mature, but he's mature. And Paul's saying the same thing. I haven't already matured. You know, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect, but there's a measure of maturity. And the mark of maturity is this. Now, will you get this? The mark of maturity is not that you're a five-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist or that you're premillennial or dispensational or, or whatever. You know, the mark of maturity is that you've got this pursuit going, that you're preoccupied with Christ. The other things may or may not be important, but don't center on those. Center on Christ. That's the mark of, of maturity. And if you are not centered on Christ, God will let you know. Do you understand what he's saying? You don't need to worry about false steps as you walk along with the Lord. Sometimes you get up in the morning and you feel like you're far away from God and you, there's a vague, free-floating sense of guilt you can't pin down. That's not God. If we've done something wrong, God will put his finger right on it. He'll let us know. And... Uh, what he, what he's, you know, it's his responsibility to shape our lives into conformity with his. That's what Paul is saying. Not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. As we walk along with him, he will alert us to areas of disconformity. And if he is not speaking to us, don't worry about it. That's what he's saying. Just keep walking along with him, and he'll begin to change you. Uh, there's a white oak right across the fence from our house in the park right behind us. And I noticed one, uh, one winter that the, the leaves turned brown, but they didn't fall off. And when spring came, they all fell off. And I went to look to see why that happened. And I, these little green 
little green leaf just pushing that dead limb off. And I thought, you know, it's, that's exactly what happens in, in the Christian life. God doesn't rip things off of our agenda. He, he begins to push them off gently as the new life begins to pervade uh, pervade us. Then you know, we begin to change, sometimes almost unconsciously. As we walk along with him, we become more and more like him. We, Carol and I had the privilege of having Ray Stebman in our home last Friday night. He came through on his way to a conference in Montana and spent the night with us. As most of you know, I spent 18 years, almost 18 years, in, in his church in Palo Alto. And as he was sta- sitting there talking to us, uh, I realized that, that many of my mannerisms are raised. The way he gestures is exactly the way I gesture. And it dawned on me that I didn't do that consciously. I didn't decide I was going to mimic Ray. I just picked it up over the 17 years. You know, the man loved me, and he cared for me, and he taught me, and, and we walked along together all those years, and I just, because I, I admired him so, I just unconsciously picked up his mannerisms, and I think that's what begins to happen to us as we walk with the Lord. He begins to change us, and that's why Jesus can say, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Last... Uh, Summer, Carolyn and I went over to Montana to a little uh, family conference at uh, Clydehurst Ranch, just a few couples meeting together for a week-long conference. And there was a lady over there that was teaching painting. She was a wonderful artist, and she brought out some of her oils and showed showed us some of the things that she had done. And and then she invited us to learn how to paint, and a lot of people showed up for her session and she was just a wonderful teacher because she had the painting up in front of them all the time. And she said, now I want you to copy the painting. And she'd walk around the room and, and uh, she'd praise. Some people got it better than others. Some people, you know, they were really struggling with it. But she, she praised everybody for trying and encouraged them along. And sometimes she'd put her hand over their hand and, and paint out something that they had botched up and, and repaint it. And... and uh, and she could be very stern. Sometimes she'd say, no, 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 you're getting it wrong. Don't do it like that. Do it like this. And she'd point to her painting, and then she'd take their hand, and she'd do it properly. And, but, see, all the way through, there was this, there was this note of encouragement and, and excitement about what you're doing and help, comfort. And, and so much like the Lord. That's what he's doing. He wants us to get it right, and he can be stern sometimes, but underneath are the everlasting arms, and there's this this loving heart being demonstrated toward us all the time. I'd like to close by reading the poem that's on the front of your bulletin, uh, because I think this is a good summation of what Paul is saying in this passage. It's entitled, I Sought the Lord. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. It was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me.